0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the gathering of Rivertown Church. If you are a guest with us or if this is your first time, uh, welcome. It's a privilege to have you here. And we count it a joy to gather with one another and to look to the scriptures and to see who the Lord is and what he has done. And we praise him because of the goodness he has revealed to us in the Christ Jesus. And so that's what we're about. We're, we're a church that loves Jesus and seeks to worship him and make him known in all that we do. And so if you're here today and you didn't know what, what you were doing here, there's a, there's a tip. But it's a joy to have you. And uh, we're continuing today in um, our Genesis series. We are in the final scene of what is, has been an extended Jacob and Esau episode. We'll see later in Genesis interactions between the two, but this marks the final scene of a major episode, and um, it's going to be hopefully a joy and exciting, but also um, a charge for us as well as we, observe, uh, as we observe the two brothers. And so let's pray. Together and let's read the text and dive right in. Father, you are merciful, and we know you have been good to us, and that you have shown us steadfast love because you have sent us your Son. As we sang this last song, we understand that we have had to bring nothing. And furthermore, we could not bring anything to be accepted or to be made righteous. We have not one thing to offer. But in love, you have called us to yourself in Christ. And we have everything we need in him. I pray today that as we navigate the word, your word, we would marvel at your grace, at your beauty and that we would worship you as such. Lord, I pray that there would be more of you and less of us, that you would be magnified throughout this time, and that we would treasure you as our Savior, our Keeper, our Holder, and as the one true God. Lord, be with us as we seek your face through your Word. Spirit, please reveal the mercies of God to us. It's in your name I pray and I ask these things. Amen. All right, we are picking up on the tail end of Genesis 7 and going right through to verse 9 of chapter 28. Uh, If you're using the Genesis Scripture Bible, then uh, you can go ahead and uh, turn to page 122 in the Genesis Scripture uh, journal. And if you don't have a Bible and you would like one, please raise your hand. And someone will immediately get out of their chair, grab you a Bible, and hand it to you. So, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, please raise your hand. Don't don't be embarrassed. We would much rather you be able to follow along uh, than anything else. So, again, raise your hand if you don't have a copy of the Scriptures. Okay. Let's dive in. Picking up in verse 46 of Genesis 27. Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban your mother's brother god almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples may he give the blessing of abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that god gave to abraham thus isaac sent jacob away and he went to padan aram to laban the son of Beth- bethuel bethuel the aramean the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padon Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padon Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. In this final scene, we have two two distinct pictures. Two distinct pictures. That of Jacob and that of Esau. And so I have three, three points, and the first, our first subtext, first, first bullet, our first point is the fruit of a covenant, all right? The fruit of a covenant. And this is what I mean by this. Anytime a covenant is struck between God and people, there are results or fruit that typically extends from the covenant struck. And what I'm not necessarily saying is that there are conditions to a covenant because many of the covenants in the Bible are unconditional. Yet, the person who is the recipient of said covenant is always changed. And because of that change, their actions are changed. And so we're going to look at the three, what I would consider the three main covenants of the Old Testament. These aren't the only three. But real quick, just to, to kind of prove my argument here, we have the Abrahamic covenant, unconditional. The Abrahamic covenant, we see struck in Genesis 12, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. The Lord is the sole responsible party in that covenant. If you remember in Genesis 15, when Abraham's name is still Abram, he promises to give him a lineage and to make him... A blessing to all the nations and that he would have offspring like the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore and Abraham believed on the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness that's why Abraham is the father of faith because he believed on the Lord he just trusted that the Lord's word was good and that it is what it is because God is God it is what it is because God is God. And we know in that narrative that the Lord put Abram at the time to sleep. And the Lord, the Lord's spirit is the only party that walked through those split animals. And a covenant was struck between God and Abram with God being the only responsible party. So it's unconditional. We later see in Genesis 17 that there is a sign of that covenant and the lord tells abraham this is when he changes his name in seven in genesis chapter 17 that you will mark the covenant or have a sign for the covenant and it will be circumcision and all the males of your lineage will be circumcised on the eighth day and anyone not circumcised is not in the covenant but don't don't confuse that with a type of law within the covenant because Abraham's righteousness was by faith and that covenant was struck on the sole party of God and God himself, God and God alone, okay? So that's the Abrahamic covenant then we bounce by at least 400 years and we see the Mosaic covenant. It's called this because it's really the law of God to the people of God. Moses was the leader of the people and he was the prophet by whom the Lord spoke to the people. And so the law was given by Moses. The the Mosaic covenant is a conditional covenant. It's a conditional covenant. A law was given, or the law. I think in total there are 633 laws in the law. And it was given. And these prescriptions were given so that the people might see and understand the righteousness of God. Okay? And that they might obey. But. But even in this covenant, the Lord is specific to say it's so that you might love me. And then, so that that covenant is struck in um, Exodus 19 through 26, excuse me, 19 through 24. And then it's elaborated upon in Deuteronomy. Specifically in Deuteronomy 28, the Lord says there are blessings if you obey and there are curses if you disobey. Blessings if you obey, but curses if you disobey. But even still, with this type of covenant that is conditional, the, the rewards of that covenant were being that they would enter into the land, that they would possess their enemies, that they would be established in the promised land, that they would be fruitful, that they would multiply, and that the Lord would bless them in all that they did. That every womb would be fruitful, all the land would be fruitful, they would, have, uh, they would never be in want, but it would always be plenty, and that they would subdue their enemies But only if, only if they followed the law. We know they didn't. And so they lost the blessings and the curses came upon them. But listen to this in Deuteronomy 30. This is the heart even of the law. Deuteronomy 30 starting in verse 11. For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you. Neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, Who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. See, I have set before you today life and good, death and evil. Are drawn away to worship other gods and serve them, I declare to you today that you shall surely perish. You shall not live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to enter and possess. I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, and holding fast to him. For he is your life and length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. And so this marks the Mosaic covenant, the law, the giving of the law, and a contract, if you will, to keep the law for the rewards thereof. Then we get to a third major covenant in the Old Testament, and it's the Davidic covenant, the covenant of David. This, too, is an unconditional covenant. We see this in 2 Samuel 7. David has been established as the king. He has honored the Lord in all that he has done. The Lord separated him out from among the peoples, established his anointing by first using David to kill Goliath, and then sets him apart from the house of Saul, who was the king at the time. And the the text is specific that the spirit of the Lord left Saul, but the spirit of the Lord was upon David. And David sought to please the Lord in all that he did. It even says that David had a heart after God. He was a man after God's own heart. So in 2 Samuel 7, David has a desire to build a house for the Lord. He says, why is it that I live in a house, but the Lord is still in a tabernacle? He wasn't literally in a tabernacle, but up until this point in Israel's redemptive history... When the people were in the wilderness, they had a tent, a tabernacle, that was used for worship. And in the tabernacle was several tents or several rooms, and in the most uh, secluded and most honorable room, it was called the Holy of Holies. And there, the Ark of the Covenant sat, and that was the representation of God's Spirit with His people. So, in a sense, the Lord lived in a tent, in a sense. And... The tabernacle had remained even into the monarchy. And David desired to build a temple. He wanted to honor the Lord. And so the Lord spoke to Nathan the prophet, and through him he said, You're not going to build me a house. I don't need one. Everything is mine. Yet, yet, I will establish your house forever. It doesn't mean the bricks and the mortar. But your lineage, I will establish your lineage forever. And should your sons honor me, they will reign forever on the throne of David. And he says very specifically, your son shall build me a house. And your house will rule forever. And so there's implications to that covenant that the sons of David will honor the Lord it's it's assumed but really it's unconditional because david has nothing to do the covenant was struck with him and his sons or the, his lineage are clear recipients of a gracious god striking a, a gracious covenant with their father david and so these are three covenants right and and though though there are in the Mosaic, at least, there's there's conditions. You you see that the recipients of the covenants all live differently after after being presented the covenant, or after the covenant is struck with them. There's expectations of a different life. And so now we look back to the Esau, to the Jacob Esau narrative, and we see, we see that. Because of the covenant struck with Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, in faith, he must not marry a Canaanite woman, a woman. Because why? We've looked at this several weeks ago, actually. If they, excuse me, Abraham was promised that his lineage would enter into the land and take possession of it take possession of it. That it would be his lineage. And so if we backtrack a little bit in Genesis, Abraham tells his servant, do not let Isaac marry a Canaanite woman. Do not go back to anywhere else, but you know, don't go back to Egypt. Don't, don't go anywhere, but find for my son kindred so that the covenant is born of God and God alone. That we're not Mixing with the people that the Lord has already told me my heirs would possess. Okay? This isn't a a race thing or a religious thing even. But simply this is the people of God trusting the promises of God because they knew that the land would soon be theirs and that by intermixing with the people... They were forfeiting the promises of God. And so this narrative parallels the Abraham and Isaac narrative, all right? It parallels it. And Jacob is well aware of that. And so the fruit of the covenant struck with his grandfather is trusting in the word given and obeying the obvious command To not intermingle with the peoples that you will soon subdue. Okay, are we all tracking with that? If you look back later, or if you look forward, when I read in Deuteronomy, the Lord warned warned the people there that if you don't obey me and you enter into the land and you don't subdue the peoples, you will worship their gods. You will you will soon worship their gods. And if you know anything about Israel's history, this is obvious. It's obvious. Every time they refuse to subdue the people that the Lord told them to, to consecrate to destruction or to devote to destruction, they begin to worship their gods. They betray the Lord their God because they intermarry, they give their daughters to their men, and, and they take their daughters for their men, and all's out, all, everything's out the window at this point. Because you've got to make your in-laws happy, <laughs> right? No, but because they have compromised. They compromised. And so, in spiritual wisdom and sight, Jacob determines that the command given him by his father is good and right because it is consistent with the covenant given his grandfather. And so, if you continue in, into chapter 28, Isaac calls Jacob and blesses him and directs him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, okay? So this marks my second section, the striving of belief, the striving of belief, or we're going we're to look specifically at, at striving, and there's two types of striving. There's striving in belief or in faith, and there's a striving that's carnal and that's not within the parameters of faith. It's a striving in the flesh. Jacob here is a picture of striving in faith. He's striving from belief. He trusts the word given to his forefathers, and he acts accordingly. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply, that you may become a company of peoples. We see here the blessing that he has already been given by Isaac is reiterated. right? It's reiterated. And then we see the blessing of the Abrahamic covenant reaffirmed. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply that you may become a company of peoples. It's, it's, that's alluding back to the promise given to Abraham. And then specifically he says, may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. And what, is, what, is, what does Jacob do? He went to Padanaram. Aram. That's what he did. He just left. He did it. (laughs) The text doesn't really elaborate the point, but the point is still clear. Jacob obeyed. Jacob obeyed. There was no fuss. There was no episode. Isaac sent him away, and he went away. A lot of times, obedience, and hear me out, and I mean spiritual obedience. I don't mean... This is still hitting at striving in faith, okay? Obedience is just simply hearing the word and obeying. And that's really all it is. But a lot of times we we turn it into something as if I've got to discern this, this mystical will of God. I've got to somehow navigate through the puzzle or maze of his word. And maybe he'll give me a sign of sorts. But that's not the Christian life. Nor is that even faith. Rather, it's simply hearing the word and obeying. Jesus says very specifically, the one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. Does that sound a little bit like the the Mosaic law? The one who has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me? Because what we do is the fruit of what we believe, always. This, This parable that Jesus teaches, I'm gonna read it has has always comforted me because I'm stubborn. I'm stubborn and yet I find much joy and comfort in and knowing that Jesus knows my weakness. And he gives a parable of two sons and he says this. What do you this is in uh, Matthew 21 starting in verse 28. What do you think? A man had two sons and he went to the first and said, "Son, Go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to another son, or the other son, and said the same. And he answered, the son answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of the father? The crowd responded, the first. Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, The tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. He's talking to the religious elite and how they consistently responded to the word of God saying, Yes, yes, we believe it. We believe it. We're walking in the ways of God, and yet they never went to the vineyard. And so prostitutes and tax collectors who heard the word and simply obeyed are now more righteous than they are. Jesus wants our hearts because our hearts will always reveal what is true. Our actions are simply fruit of the heart, and Jesus is aiming directly at the heart. He doesn't want our lip service. He just wants us. He just wants us. Jacob heard the word and he obeyed. All right. The striving of unbelief. Let's look to Esau. Verse 7. Esau observes the blessing and the command given Jacob. He even notes it says, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Padan Aram to take a wife from there, and that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Padan Aram. Esau sees it. He says, look, my brother obeyed. Okay, well, I'm still in a position where I have not received the blessing. In fact, I have given up my birthright. What do I have to do to be accepted? What do I have to do to be accepted? So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, he went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael. Esau's entire life illustrates unbelief and worship of self. He sees his father and mother's displeasure with Canaanite women, but he doesn't understand why. He doesn't see that it's simply the ramification of a covenant struck by God. Well, Esau already had two wives. They happened to be Hittite women. He married two Hittite women. We see that in verse, excuse me, in chapter 26 verse thirty four. And in the last verse of chapter twenty seven Rebecca said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? She is not happy. She's not happy. And as we've already seen in this entire drama of this family, Rebecca's actions are far from righteous. Far from righteous. They're all guilty. At various points of being selfish and attempting to thwart the will of God. Yet, yet, Isaac sees rightly the issue and still commands Jacob to go and to not marry Canaanite women. But Esau, in seeing In seeing the displeasure of his mother and father, he attempts, he attempts to be accepted. So what does he do? He goes and he grabs another wife. But listen to this. Again, Esau's entire life illustrates unbelief and worship of self. He's unholy, as the author of Hebrews says. He traded his birthright for a bowl of stew. He... And after that, he then despises his birthright, thus abandoning the blessing that is attached to it. He marries two women who are not women of the promise. Undoubtedly, he knew of the story of Abraham, his grandfather, who in faith charged Isaac not to marry a Canaanite woman. Undoubtedly, he knew that story. And finally, because he did not repent in due time, he was cut off from the promises of God though he sought them with tears. Hebrews 12, we see that. And in, a, and in one final attempt to be accepted, to be a recipient of God's promises, though he had already rejected them time and time and time again, he marries one of Ishmael's daughters. I hope you see the irony in this. And if not, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to elaborate on it. Esau is so carnally minded. That is, fleshly minded. Carnal being the body of sin within us. Esau is so carnally minded that he does not even see the vanity of his strivings. In trying to please his father, in an attempt to please his father, he marries the daughter of one who is not the child of promise. Ishmael was born to Abraham and Hagar because Abraham did not trust the promises of God. And though Ishmael was blessed by God, he is not the child of promise. Do you see the irony of this? Esau is so blind He's so fixated on, a temp, on a, fixing his situation within his own strength and with his own wit and wisdom that he doesn't even realize the wife he's grabbing is from one who is not part of the promise. Ishmael had been rejected, protected and blessed, but rejected from the promise to Abraham. Esau doesn't even see it. He has no clue what he's doing. He has no clue. Esau believes that his own strivings and that his own deeds can save him. But this is what we know from the scripture. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Esau saw the command to Jacob to go and marry a woman from his kindred, as a type of command, as a type of law, that if he could fulfill it in his own strength, he would be accepted. Do you see that? He saw this covenant ramification as a type of law that would serve as his justification. And he failed because he he didn't see things spiritually. But in all of this, He has looked to self. Let me preserve myself. Let me be accepted so that I have the blessing. Not once in this entire Jacob Esau drama does Esau see things through the lens of God's spirit and his covenant promises. And so now, What does this mean for us? How does this have traction on us, presumably those in the room who have trusted in Christ and belong to God in Christ, and undoubtedly for some of you in the room who have not yet? What characterizes striving by faith, like Jacob, versus striving in the flesh, like Esau? What characterizes this, and and how do we think rightly about this? Well, I, I mentioned earlier three main covenants in the Old Testament. And now I present to you a final covenant, the new covenant in Christ. Paul writes to Timothy, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Jesus Christ who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. The new covenant is established completely on Christ. It's inaugurated by his spilled blood, his broken body, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension to the throne of heaven. This covenant serves as the true fulfillment of all the former covenants. This covenant is the fulfillment of all former covenants in Christ we are circumcised in the heart by the Spirit a circumcision not made with hands Abraham's covenant was marked by circumcision in the flesh Christ's covenant is marked by circumcision of the heart the mosaic covenant required a fulfilling of the law because it was the standard and still is the standard of God's righteousness In Christ, we fulfill the law of God through the power of the Spirit and through the love of Christ given to us. The Davidic covenant promised an heir to the throne of David forever. And we see in the new covenant that Jesus is the true son of David who will rule eternally on the throne of David in the age to come. He rules and reigns now, but the throne of David will be established in the new heavens and new earth where Jesus will sit forever as king on the throne, as the true son of David. So in this covenant, there is one mediator, one mediator. The covenant is struck on Christ. It is inaugurated through him. And it is given to us by him. There is nothing. Nothing we do in response. This is an unconditional covenant. And this covenant is available to anybody. Who would say. I'm desperate. I'm desperate to know God. I'm desperate to put away. My own striving. And to trust. In my maker. And so. the covenantal faith that Jacob had was simply a foretaste, a foretaste of what was to come. As we continue through redemptive history, we see the subsequent covenants established, and we see that there's a a glimpse of someone who will fulfill those covenants. And that was the faith of people of Israel, of the people of Israel, of Old Testament folks who were longing to what would be fulfilled. And their actions were the fruit of that longing. In Matthew 11, Jesus writes this, or he says this, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Okay, Jesus in his own words establishes the fact that if you want to know God the Father, you can only know him through Christ the Son. There is no other way. There is no other way. Yes, this makes salvation exclusive in the sense that there is only one Savior and his name is Jesus and he is the Messiah of God. There is only one way. Yet, Jesus then says this, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. There is no condition in the covenant of Christ. Yet, your faith in the word of God will be revealed by your striving, a striving of faith. And yet, this is what it looks like in the new covenant. It's simply this. It's answering the call of Jesus to come. It's simply answering the call of Jesus when he says, come to me. Come. The work has been completed. He... In his body bore your sin on the tree. Paul says in Galatians, it says, For through the law, I've died to the law. All the requirements, the righteous requirements of God have been fulfilled in Christ. What Paul means by that is this. He says, The law required a payment for sin. The law required substitutionary payment. And we in faith, have died with Christ. I've, I'm dead to the world. And I've died to the law. And the contract, Romans 7, Paul elaborates and says, look, the law is like a, it's, as a covenant, it's like a marriage, right? We uphold that marriage is a covenant. And that covenant must not be broken. Ideally, Until death do us part. That's the hope and the aim. And so it is with the recipients of the law and the law. It's a binding contract. And you can't break it unless one of those parties dies. And the beauty of the covenant of Christ is that in Christ you have died to the law. It no longer has dominion over you. There are no longer legal ramifications. The curse is gone. Jesus became the curse for you. And now that you are free from the law, you are free to live by the Spirit of God. The fruit of this new covenant is the Spirit given to us by Christ himself. His Spirit in us. That is the fruit of the covenant. Romans 8 says that if you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ. It's as simple as that. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to Christ because it's His Spirit. And yet, all the while, there's no... There's no... There's no condition other than come. There is no... That's the beauty of it. There's nothing I can say or do or offer. He simply wants you to come. He wants all of you. But it's as simple as saying yes to Jesus and no to self. And in that striving, you find your rest. I think there are many of us in the room whose lives look a, a lot more like Esau than we care to admit. You see from afar what is right and what is good. And yet you strive to take a hold of it in your own strength. You believe that you have enough faith. That you can obey enough. That you can carry your own burdens. Anyone? I don't think I'm the only one. We continually strive in the flesh because we have yet to see clearly how everything is already ours in the Messiah and that he simply asks us to come come and rest in his completed work come and rest and so today is an opportunity to say look I have lived more like Esau than Jacob. And though Jacob is simply an example, he is just one figure in a narrative that's pointing all the way to Jesus. And so today is an opportunity to say, I will no longer strive in my own flesh. Some of you don't even know what it looks like to not do that. I know that feeling too. But it's this, it's, it's letting it go. It's laying aside self and saying, Lord, have your will and your way. I trust your word, and because your word is what it is, and you are who you say you are, I'll do it. I'll do it. You trust him with that and see what the Lord does. You trust him with that and see how the spirit moves in your life. You trust him with that. And I can promise you, because the word says it is true, I promise you that he will do a work in you that is so supernatural, it is more than you can even ask or imagine. I promise that. I can't fulfill the promise, but I know the God who gave us that promise. He will do it. But set aside self. Stop striving in the flesh to acquire that which is spiritual. The only man who was righteous has acquired it for you. Trust him today. And to hold into tension, striving in faith or striving in the flesh, I love what the author of Hebrews says. Hebrews 4, starting in verse 8. The author had just warned how Israel, while in the wilderness, died. They were put to death because they kept grumbling and complaining. They didn't trust the Lord, his word, or even the things he'd already done. He had literally just pulled them out of Egypt. They walked on dry land while they walked through the Red Sea, meaning... There were walls of water, (laughs) and the bottom of the sea had been made dry as the Lord carried them through. They were fed in the wilderness. They had water in the wilderness, and yet they refused to enter into the land because they were scared. And so many did not enter. Many did not enter and then the author of Hebrews picks up and he says this for if Joshua had given them rest God would not have spoken of another day later on so then there remains a sabbath rest for the people of God for whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his let us therefore strive to enter that rest do you hear how the paradox there let us therefore strive to enter that rest you see we think of rest as the absence of things to do or peace and solitude or what whatever but the rest that God gives us is a spiritual rest that's so deep it pervades every avenue and corner of life it pervades our entire being and our entire livelihood it's a rest that strengthens us to work hard when we need to work hard to have joy when all is hopeless it's a rest that causes us to look completely in full assurance of faith at the things to come that's the rest that God provides and the author says here let us therefore strive to enter that rest so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience that Israel fell to. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see that? In Christ, we have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace. Striving in faith is always this, come. Come. Jesus says, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. Set your strivings aside. And simply make your resolve to come to me, and you will find rest. That's the invitation to us all today. In a world that has gone mad and in a world that is filled with sinners of, of whom we also are, <laughs> we get to set aside our attempts to be righteous, our attempts to please God in the flesh, our attempts to be accepted and Bank solely on the fact that our acceptance, our righteousness, our position is all in Christ. And the work is completed, it is finished. And the invitation is this come, come, that you might find rest. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're good. Your kindness has been made so abundantly manifest in the gospel. Lord, so much of of what I do and what I say, it's it's all an attempt to satiate fleshly desires and to work and scheme my will in my way. And I I'm sure it's the same for others in the room, but I pray that we would. Learn the sweet art of surrender. That we would give all of ourselves to all of you. And that we would strive to enter the rest that you have given us in Christ. Lord, thank you for today. I pray that your word would continually cut and pierce. And that the word would lead us and guide us. Spirit, would you strengthen us and illuminate our minds to your word. And I pray that we would see you clearly and hear you loudly as we seek your face. Lord, I pray that many in the room would accept the invitation to come and draw near the throne of grace. I pray this and ask it in your good name. Amen.